I hope you'll open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the verses printed there in the, uh, the worship folder. I'll begin reading verses 1 through 11. We're going to save those other verses for another time. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So ends the reading of God's holy word. The digital camera I use on my phone and computer puts, automatically puts holidays on the calendar. And I'm embarrassed at times to admit that often I have no idea what some of those holidays are. No idea at all, whether it's for some other country in the world or, or just something I've not bothered to pay attention to. Now, I think probably, at least in America today, many people may hear Palm Sunday and really not know what it is. Uh, and they think, what is it? Well, let me just in one sentence tell you Palm Sunday is the day many Christians around the world commemorate Jesus entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people waved palm branches and shouted Hosanna. That's what, that's what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, we're looking at the account in the Gospel of Mark. You have to realize Mark is only 16 chapters, and the last third of that, beginning in this chapter, deal with the last seven days of Jesus' life on earth. In the Gospel of John, the entire second half of the Gospel of John focuses on the last week or so of the life of Jesus. Now, the Gospel writers understood that the events which took place uh, between Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, when he entered Jerusalem for that final time, and his ascension into heaven after the resurrection, they knew those events were critically important. That's why they gave so much attention to them. One of the reasons this is important, this account, and why we would even um, come back to it annually, is that it shows us Jesus was a king, but he was unlike any king that has ever lived. Let me explain. You know that a monarchy is a form of government in which a person, the monarch, is head of the state. And they normally rule for life. 
A monarch may have such titles as emperor or king or caliph or czar or sultan or shah or many others. Their power can range from purely symbolic to being autocratic and even dictatorial. Up until 100 years or so ago, monarchies were the most common form of government in the world. Isn't that amazing? The loss of monarchies, by and large, is a modern, very modern thing in recent history. In fact, 45 nations, sovereign nations, still have monarchs today. So it's important that we realize that God's people, the nation of Israel, that he had chosen, the Hebrews, they did not always have a king. They originally were not set up that way. How did they get one? Well, we find that, and you don't need to turn there, but you, you might later, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, here's what happened. I'll just tell it to you. Uh, Samuel was God's spokesman at that time, what we would call a judge. And the people came to Samuel as their leader and said, You are old. Old man, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And so Samuel prayed about it. And God said to Samuel to tell them, okay, let them have a king, but warn them what the king will do. It, it, they're going to be like, God doesn't say this, but they're going to be like a dog chasing a car. And when they get it, they're not going to know what hit them. So tell them. And he said in 1 Samuel 8, God said to Samuel to tell them, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariot. So he's going to take your sons and make soldiers out of them. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to take your daughters, and they will have to serve in his court. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maid servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry for relief from the, from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you. And even hearing this, it says in 1 Samuel 8, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, no, they answered, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. What were they looking for? They wanted protection, they wanted provision, and they wanted direction. Who was providing that for them? God was. Same as we want. Provision, protection, and direction. God was the one who was providing that for them. So God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. In their desire for a king, they are rejecting me. And so God gives them what they want. But the problem is that he will take. They're going to regret it because he's going to take all these things from you. Someone here 
uh, long ago gave me a traveling brochure of some sort because you had been to Hampton Court in England. Maybe a bunch of you have been to Hampton Court in England. I looked at their website last night. It says the greatest wedding venue in the entire world. One of the homes of Henry VIII. And massive, uh, massive. It was given to him in 1525. To show you how big it was, when James I spent Christmas there in 1601, they were a little cramped with their guest with 1,200 rooms, so they had to set up tents uh, in the park. <laughs> well, how did Ken Henry VIII gain such riches? How did he gain such possessions as Hampton Court? Did I say Hampton Inn a few minutes ago? I hope not. <laughs> as Hampton Court. He took it. You think kings and queens produce anything? No, they've taxed the people. And so the, the jewelry and the, the homes and the castles and the travel and all that, that comes off the backs of the people. They have provided it. And that's what God was warning Israel under Samuel about when they got a king to give you provision and protection and direction, he's going to take. He's going to take a tenth of almost everything you have, including your own children, to serve in his court. Here's the truth. You and I are serving a king today also. You have a master in your life. You are looking to something or some things to give you provision and protection and direction. Maybe it's God, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a, a savings account, maybe who knows what it might be, but you're saying, that's where I get my provision, protection, and direction. We want a king, but Jesus is very different. So let me show you what king, what type of king this is. He comes, the passage tells us, he's walking in front of his disciples. They come to a small village called Bethphage, and it's about two miles from Jerusalem. And he, he sends two of his disciples into the village to obtain a donkey, an unridden colt, for him to ride on. And, and we, ever, we wonder, man, that's not exactly a kingly animal, is it? How about a stallion to come in to Jerusalem with? Well, at that time, he chose a donkey for two reasons. One was it was a fulfillment of a prophecy made 500 years before. Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Uh, also, in those days, in those days, riding on a donkey in Israel was a kingly act. David had ridden on a donkey. It was a royal animal in, in David's during David's reign. So Jesus knew precisely what he was doing when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And his choice of that animal was a declaration to the world of who he was. That this was the one Zechariah prophesied about. That this was the Redeemer, the Messiah. And it also showed what he was like. That he was humble. And that he was coming to bring peace. Verses 7 through 10 describe the scene when he comes into town. Very different from anything he had done before. For the 
Approximately three years of his public ministry, he had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds. He had told people after healings and miraculous deeds, don't spread this around to other people. He would tell his disciples, don't tell other people. He did not, at that time, want the multitudes hindering what he was doing. But all that changes now. And so he is going public. He is declaring that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. And so the people fling their clothes, their robes in front of him as a gesture of reverence. It's a red carpet, we would say, a red carpet reception. And then the palm branches, it tells us more details in John chapter 12, said they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, the, the palm branches represented the nationalistic desire of the Jews to be delivered. It had its history with a man named Simon Maccabeus some 150 years earlier. But his entry is celebrated with praise and with, with thanksgiving. And we're told elsewhere, even with musical instruments. So Luke 19 tells us, when he came near the place where the road goes down, to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. And Hosanna meant save or save us, and they're shouting this. Mark says in verse 9 that those who went ahead and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And there's this antiphony of sorts going back and forth. Save us, save us now. Salvation, the Bible tells us, is not found in any bishop or pastor or guru or president or king or anybody else in this world. Acts 4 says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Then verse 11, which seems to be anticlimactic, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's almost like, Mark, why did you even put that in there? Nothing happened. It's like he, he walked into the temple, looked around, walked out late in the day, and they, they leave. Well, I think this is the climax of the passage. Here's why I say that. What was in the temple? What was it that he saw? Well, there was the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. Then as you move forward into the temple, there was the court of the women, there was the court of Israel, there were the priest courts. So the temple was a system of courts. And then ultimately you came to the altar. The altar was where sacrifices were offered. It was wood, it was covered with brass or copper at that time, and it was a perfect square, and on each of the four corners were the horns of animals. And it was where the blood sacrifices of lambs and goats were offered in the heat of fire unto God for atonement for sin. And then there was another piece of furniture. It, it was a washing basin, a large lavatory uh, where the priests were to wash. It was made of polished copper. Its purpose was a ceremonial washing of their hands and their feet from dirt and contamination as they came to worship God. And then a little further in was the holy place, which contained not copper, but gold. 
the golden lampstand, the golden table of bread, and the golden altar of incense. And here, the priest, after the priest had washed their hands and feet, they entered into this place to perform and perform worship unto God, representing the people. And then ultimately was the holiest place, which contained the box, the Ark of the Covenant, that had a special lid called the mercy seat. And the veil, a very large, thick veil, blocked the way so that others could not enter into this place. What was the temple? Here's what it was. It was a visual aid that you and I need forgiveness of sin to be able to have connection with God. Everything there was just a visual aid, a representative of the fact that we need a sacrifice, that you and I are born dead in our trespasses and sins, that God wants to have life with us, but he must punish our sins so he can't have life with us. He promised to send a redeemer, a substitute represented in those animals who would die in the place to take the punishment for sin, die the death that sin deserved, and that God would offer atonement. All this was foreshadowing that God would ultimately send his son, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Christ was the fulfillment of that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Christ walking into the temple and what he was thinking as he looked at all of that? There's no need for this anymore. There's no need for this anymore. There's no need for that altar anymore. There's no need for the Holy of Holies anymore. And that's why after he's crucified, what happens to that curtain? It rips. God was showing that access now is granted through Christ. We don't need a human priest to go through. He was the fulfillment. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this. That is why he said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was the temple. So he's a different kind of king. Jesus will return again, the Bible tells us. We're tweeners. We're tweeners. We're in between that coming and the next coming. That's where we're living right now. If you wonder where are we on the chart, you can get, argue about the details at the end. But we're in between. That's where we are. We're in between the first coming and the second coming. But when he comes back next time, the Bible says it's not going to be on a donkey. And it's not going to be uh, to bring peace. Revelation describes that he will be on a white stallion with a sword in his hand to conquer his enemies. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That includes you and it includes me. Will we do so in rebellion? Or will we do so because we acknowledge him now as Savior and King and Lord? Your greatest need, our greatest need, is to be saved. To have our sins forgiven by this King. The greatest need is to know God as your Heavenly Father through Christ His Son. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have made a way for us to be right with you and we don't now come with the blood of bulls and animals and make sacrifices and, and go through human priests with great details of everything that's happened. But now you provided the ultimate sacrifice, the complete sacrifice, your son. And may our trust be in him 
and in him only, not in our own morality, not in religious system, not in anyone else. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.